I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey listeners, Becky here. A quick content warning before we start. Today's episode contains discussions about films that involve sexual violence, fascism, the Holocaust, and footage or photographs of real deaths used in fictional films. If that's not for you, we completely understand. Join us again next week, where we'll look at two Jim Henson fantasy movies. On another note, we recorded this episode before the 2021 Oscar nominations were released, so we say only five women have been nominated for the Best Director category of the Academy Awards. We can now add Chloe Zhao and Emerald Fennell to that list, making it seven. Thanks, as always, for listening. Now, on with the show. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by curator and film historian Alicia Fletcher and Emily Gagné, the host of the We Really Like Her podcast, which celebrates women in film. She loves mother-daughter dramas and 80s slasher movies. And being from Toronto, Emily has programmed films for the Royal Cinema and the Review Cinema. But she doesn't just love movies. She also makes them. Her first short film, Best Friends Forever, which she co-directed and co-wrote with Josh Korngut, recently finished its festival run. And with that, we'd like to welcome Emily Gagné to the show. Eurovision is an event I look forward to every year. If you've never in earnest been down a YouTube rabbit hole watching the death metal antics of a demon-costumed band, followed by Russian babas dancing it out to a track titled Party for Everybody, that is my gift to you. Eurovision gave us ABBA and Celine Dion and Olivia Newton-John. In fact, coming in second to ABBA's Waterloo was an Italian song called Sea, performed by Giliola Cinquetti. The story of the song is that there is a young woman who is falling in love with a man and saying see to spending the rest of their lives together in holy matrimony. In the song, she says see 16 times. Despite doing so well at the event, the song's presence was the reason that all of Eurovision was not broadcast that year on Italy's national broadcaster, RIA. Why? Well, in 1970, the majority of Italy's government was made up of the Communist Party and the Socialist Party, and they passed a law making divorce legal in Italy for the first time. But in 1974, there was a pushback by the now-prominent Christian Democrats and the neo-fascist Italian Socialist Movement for a referendum to make divorce illegal again, you know, to preserve the nuclear family and all that. So the referendum was held just after Eurovision, and people were asked to vote, get ready for this, yes if they wanted to outlaw divorce, and no if they wanted to continue to be allowed to be divorced. Got that? So what does the song C have to do with it? Well, it's about a young woman who longs to be married, and there were concerns that C, being said so often, would subliminally influence people to vote yes for no divorce in the referendum. The proposal was defeated, and it remained legal to be divorced in Italy, although the rules would continue to change up until today. It's complicated. Now, this seems like a lot of context, but to discuss our two films today, knowing what was going on in both Italian politics and Italian feminism is really important. Women had a lot to fight for and against in the 70s. So let's get into Italian politics, Italian feminism, Italian cinema, and Lena Wertmuller and her masterpiece, Seven Beauties. Emily Gagne of the We Really Like Her podcast, where do you want to start? I don't know about you guys, and I like... I'm newer to her filmography, but I was so like shocked, I'm going to say, when I watched Seven Beauties. But like thinking about the time period really does, it does make a lot of sense. And it does make sense that she would want to make such a bold political statement because there is so much unrest. You know, there was the feminist movement, a lot of feminism. Feminista, Lada Feminista was the name of the feminist movement at the time um, that was sort of 
trying to suggest that women should be paid for their labor. And at this point, women were in the home doing this labor that wasn't considered important enough to be paid, which I mean is something that continues to this day. I don't know if that stuff is reflected in her work necessarily, which is something that I think we have to sort of talk about. She refuses to even say she's a feminist. And that goes back to the 70s. Like she doesn't think of herself as a feminist filmmaker. So it's interesting to bring up that history because she was very vocal about being a director who happened to be a woman and she wanted all of her films and her work to be viewed be equal to men male directors so in some ways that's the most feminist statement you can make even though the main reason she does not want to be considered a feminist is because so many feminist critics who call themselves feminists have attacked her work as being deeply misogynistic which when you watch it you're like oh yeah i can see that point pauline pauline kale was the main proponent of saying um that she was a misogynist filmmaker. Pauline Kael hated her films. But then you look at it from like the point of view of like, okay, she's coming from a communist socialist background where it's all about the symbology and these people, it's not necessarily about their gender. It's more about who they represent within the society, what she's trying to say. It's, I would say it's like slightly problematic, a little bit confusing, but I, but I think that it like, when I watched this movie, even though I didn't know that much about her aside from this movie, I feel like I really got a sense of who she is and what Mm -hmm. she's about just watching this movie. And it's like her voice is very um, and it made me so interested to learn more about her. I mean, I think before this, what I knew about her was that she was the first woman that was uh, nominated for Best Director at the Oscars. And that was sort of Mm -hmm. it. Also, something that she's very famous for is her white glasses that she <laughs> wears all the time, which I know seems something like something silly, but it is a signature. And she like wore them throughout her career. Yeah, the documentary, there is a really good documentary. Um, uh, I can't remember who the director is, but it has like Martin Scorsese participating. And the the name of the documentary on Lena Vertmuller is Behind the White Glasses, which is like, that's how iconic they were. They're so iconic that... In 1976, which I guess would have been the second season of Saturday Night Live, uh, Lorraine Newman actually impersonates Lena Vertmuller with the glasses, with um, Gilda Radner as Barbara Walters, because she had become so wildly and unprecedentedly, that's not a word, famous in America, which is not very common for most art house directors and definitely not common for women directors. If you watch A Year in Film, the television version for our episode in 1975, you know, we talk about uh, Jean Dillman by Chantal Ackerman, who's a Belgian filmmaker, and we talk about Joan Micklin Silver's Hester Street. And these were big art house films that really made waves for feminist filmmaking. But what we should, you know, I'm glad we saved it for the podcast. The true celebrity was Lena Vertmuller. She was on a bunch of interviews. Italians were traveling to New York City and going into Times Square and seeing not just the poster for Seven Beauties advertised with lineups down the street to see it, but they decided because of, to capitalize on the popularity to release like all of her films. So Swept Away and Love and Anarchy, all the prior films. So in Times Square in 1976, you can see just Lena Vertmuller billboards everywhere. And that blows my mind because there's very, you know, I think she's said that you only get really one Italian woman per generation who's famous, like Sophia Loren or Claudia Cardinale. For it to be her, I think was very shocking to everyone. And she also brought along with her Giancarlo Giannini, mm-hmm. who looks like mm-hmm. a classic Hollywood leading man, like a star, who also stars in Seven Beauties and Swept Away and would star in her American film, which flopped sure. afterwards that Hollywood basically abandoned her for. But uh, let's get into a little bit of Seven Beauties. Emily, you, you this is the only one of her films you've seen to date? Yes, um, I know. I feel ashamed. And I am so glad that you guys forced me to watch this. <laughs> I will say, like the other movie that we're talking about today... I was looking forward to more and I liked this. I would say this was my favorite of the two films that we picked. It shocked me because it's it's such bold filmmaking. And I think it made a lot of sense when I started to look a little bit more into Lena Vertmuller's filmography and into her history, like hearing that, you know, this is a woman born in the 20s and she was obsessed with Flash Gordon comics mm-hmm. like that that's where her understanding of the cinematic comes from yeah and and when I understood that I was like oh this movie is making a lot more sense to me in terms of the bold stylistic choices even the lighting like there's 
a scene in Seven Beauties that has like this green lighting it's that feels unbelievable. a little... Yes. Um, and so I was really taken aback. And I mean, learning a little bit more about her too, like she had made like eight films before she made, uh, I think before she made Swept Away, which really started this crossover into the States. And then Seven Beauties was this like explosion for her. And then she had worked as an assistant director with Fellini on Eight and a Half. Mm -hmm. Like she was accomplished, you know? And I think that's such a trajectory for so many women filmmakers is like, you do this work and then you finally get recognized. I don't know, considering that I haven't seen a lot of her other films. Like, um, obviously, I, I'm familiar with Swept Away because there was also an adaptation with Madonna, which was famous. Um, I love Lena Wertzmuller's uh, response to that one, where she was like, yeah, I just gave him the rights because I really like Madonna. I think she does amazing stuff. I don't really care what she did with it, but she's and amazing. never, so. ever watched it to this day. No, which totally fair. Totally it's, fair. It's, I yeah, wouldn't it's either. one of the worst remakes probably of all time. Um, and it's starring oh, right. uh, Giancarlo Giannini's son yes. in the role that he played, which I think is, uh, to Madonna's credit, she's trying to keep the spirit of Swept Away. But I think it's like when you think about Madonna and her, I can see them being sort of like parallels in the sense that they're like bold and they're brash. And Iconoclasts. They're like, Yes, yeah. mm -hmm. and they have a very specific vision of what they want to do. And button pushers within that, mm -hmm. too, right? It's like, let's just throw a bunch of imagery that's going to piss a whole bunch of people off and see what they happens. They really yeah, like and... antagonizing the press in the same way, which I appreciate. Yes, yes, absolutely. And it's it's kind of sad to see that Lena, like, almost made more of a transition to American cinema. Like, she got it, this deal with Warner Brothers after she did Seven Beauties and she was nominated for so many things. And like you guys were saying, she was like playing in, in cinemas and her work was playing in cinemas all over America. But she made this one flop and A Night Full of Rain. Well, there's a longer title. She's famous for her very long <laughs> yes. titles and in fact has had like a Guinness Book yeah. uh, world record title. The most for characters of any title. I think Seven Beauties is also titled... Pasqualino, like it has a very long title as well. And we have chosen just to call it Seven Beauties as the American <laughs> distributors did. Yes. Um, she made this one film, A Night Full of Rain, uh, which co-starred Candace Bergen and it just totally flopped so that Warner Brothers cancels her deal. And mm -hmm. then she went back to making films, you know, in Italy, which I think probably in her sense, like served her better. And I read a lot of interviews with her where she said, you know, she did feel a little bit restricted working in the American mm -hmm. climate because as we know you know there are limitations and there are restrictions on what you can do and expectations about the boundaries that you can push like to me it's shocking that this movie Seven Beauties was the one that they were like yes this is this is the one that we want to reward because it's it's it is like shocking and i could see people even being very offended by well it. i think we avoided saying what the film is about because it's the most difficult topic to cover and i am not a jewish person and i want to acknowledge that i completely understand how the jewish community and communities outside of the jewish community um any community that was was targeted by the nazi party and fascism this would be possibly very insulting this film because it is about and most of it is set at a concentration camp so we are introduced in the film to pasqualino played by giancarlo giannini we see him essentially as a deserter he's been fighting in the italian uh, fascist army um, he meets another deserter and they are captured by they find out that their train that they've jumped off on jumped off of is in Germany, which is bad luck. And uh, they are caught by the Germans and put in a concentration camp. We are then treated to sort of flashbacks um, through the perspective of Pasqualino on his very shitty, shitty life. And that's actually, a, that's how he describes his own life. He's, I've had a shitty life. <laughs> and he really, and that is not to make you empathize with him because as we will find out through this two hour film, he is a despicable figure. Um, the film is called Seven Beauties because we are introduced to his character in Naples. And he's this, you know, before, prior to the war, this really, you know, hot-headed, thinks he's really, really the shit, patriarch of a family. Now, his father's died. He has his mother. And then he has seven sisters that he's financially responsible for. And they, while the title of the film is Seven Beauties, it's very important to know that all of Vert, Vert Mueller is very obsessed with grotesque. 
uh, and the carnivalesque and the seven beauties is a euphemism um, or an ironic nickname because he has absolutely unmarriageable sisters. They're so ugly. I say that, you know, that's the story. These women are not ugly. We don't think of women that way. Not even remotely. No. <laughs> now his oldest sister has been prostituted by the man she's in love with. So Pasqualino um, kills, murders him to save his family's honor. He does it in a stupid way because honor killings were legal at the time. And I think, Becky, you told me that they were legal up until 1981. 1981, that and re- restitution marriages. Yeah. yeah, there's a number of documentaries um, made in Italy on restitution marriages that I would recommend viewers to see if you are um, at all curious about that horror horrific past to Italy which is returning apparently um but so he he kind of fucks up though because he shoots the pimp while the pimp is unarmed and then consults with the mafia who are like dude like you gotta wait until he draws then you kill him and then the judge will just say hey it's an honor killing all good so he's like I think the best thing to do is to possibly cut up this corpse and put it in a suitcase (laughs) <laughs> which is done totally slapstick yes. and like to like a ba, 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 sort of keeping in mind this is still a film about concentration camps and the holocaust um it has moments of slapstick he gets caught by the police with the suitcase and the body parts goes to jail now and this is true when the beginning of world war ii happens and of course italy is on the same side as germany they allow they give prisoners an option of um, commuting their sentence if they join the fascist army which he does realizes it's bullshit not as not not what it cracked up to be or like what he was told it was going to be like here's where it gets really upsetting because apparently this wasn't upsetting enough um he decides at the concentration camp that he wants to survive and that he's going to apply the same sort of allure that he applies to his life in Italy where he thinks women will like fawn over him. So there is um, the warden of the concentration camp is a woman played by Shirley Stoller who you're going to recognize from the Honeymoon Killers probably most famously. Um, really famous character actress, very uh, Rubenesque, very um, towering, like a large woman. And a big presence, oh. too. Like, she walks into that room and you're like, her, her, she's got something yeah. to say. Like, think Kathy Bates. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so Pasqualino decides to seduce her. This is probably the film's most famous scene. It's a scene that, I don't know how you felt about it, Emily and um, Becky, but I... Uh, I couldn't believe what I was watching. It feels impossible. He has to seduce this corpulent, very, and I don't say that as Shirley, don't say that about Shirley Stoller as a person. I mean this character who is based on a real life character, um, Ilse Koch, who is known as the witch or more commonly the bitch of Buchenwald, um, who was tried for her crimes and then killed herself in prison. You may have listened to our episode on Ilsa Shewolf the SS, which is a few episodes you back. You may have skipped you that one. You may have one. skipped that one. Yes. It's the same woman that they're based on. 1975 yeah. was a big year. The seduction scene is bathed in neon light. It is filmed from a very low angle, so she looks very scary, and he has to have sex with her. And it's uh, well, it's a sex scene for for the books. Let's just say, like I've never, yeah, the, nothing before, nothing since, and it's something that I think if you tried to recreate it, even in the concept of homage, you could never actually make it what it is yeah. because it's simultaneously a parody and so deathly serious that you're just horrified and fascinated all at once. And it, that would normally be something I would actually skip forward if I was watching it casually, but I couldn't look. My away. memory of it is there's no music on it which makes it very Mm-mm. realist and watching this documentary behind the glass the behind the white glasses um they interview martin scorsese and they interview a few other famous filmmakers and film critics and they interview Giancarlo giannini who talks about this scene and i was so interested to hear how he said they did it lena's commands to him was we're going to do multiple takes of this sorry <laughs> we're going to do multiple takes of this yeah. um and we're going to play one for slapstick make it goofy we're going to play one very serious we're going to play like dead straight we're going to play one that's kind of playful and seductive and then when she went to edit it she took one take from each uh like one one Amazing. take from each like sorry one scene or one kind of interpretation from each different take and then stitch them together which is why I think this feels impossible because the way both Shirley Stoller but more so Giannini play it is it encompasses every 
element of emotion and genre and style and it's it's both grotesque but beautiful it's both disturbing but kind of empathetic and makes sense we hate this character by this point he's he's raped a pa- um a patient in an asylum like he's you're not meant to like him at all no. and yet because it's such a i guess because it's just such a universal will to want to live to survive that's how we empathize with him and so he does he's just degraded to the point of um crawling on his knees and his award other than his sorry his reward other than a bowl of food is she puts him in charge of deciding who gets shot in his own barrack so he then has to choose which you know italian anarchists um or i would assume there's also jewish people in this concentration camp but they never really say that he has to then assign who's going to die like what a prize right um yeah yeah the ending of this film i'm not going to spoil there's a big payoff it's really yeah. what puts it in the realm of comedy. It's not just the farting corpse that he's trying to cut up and put in a suitcase, which I swear to God, that sequence, la- sequence lasts like 17 minutes of just this <laughs> no giant corpse farting. <laughs> There's so much Looney Tunes in this film. There's so much cartoon. Yeah. And the idea that, you know, in the 70s, filmmakers were, art house filmmakers were looking at trying to grapple with the Holocaust. Um, think about the films of like Fassbender think about you know Alain René like this isn't the first film to try to depict concentration camps well and from a country that had concentration camps and was directly responsible for sending people there and trying to reconcile that history and being like how do we even begin to talk about this and to make it Looney Tunes-esque and to make it a comedy and to make it this way I do not know how to wrap my brain around what she accomplished I don't know how to wrap my brain around how, how this was so successful like you were saying Emily I know that um, Giannini in this documentary talked about how they did the preview screening in Italy crickets silence didn't go well wow. did it a few weeks later in New York and the audience laughed at every single beat that Vert Mueller and um, Giannini wanted them to. So there was something that resonated with American audiences that did not in Europe. But what I will just point out is if we're thinking about 1975 and New York as being the epicenter of, you know, this is where all the art house cinemas were and where fil- most film critics were located and publishing out of, there is a lot of, there's a huge Jewish community in New York. There's a lot of survivors of the Holocaust mm-hmm. who fled to New York. I, I am still trying to wrap my brain around it as well because it is so shocking. And this is a film that like I would expect to have like a cult following, but not to be this film that was not the first woman to get nominated for an Oscar. Yeah. It's it's kind of mind melting. But I think that there's also this other side of like traumatic things. Obviously the Holocaust is one of the most traumatic horrific things that's ever happened especially in recent history but I think like sometimes there is this like need to look at things with another lens with like with a comedy lens or something like that Mm -hmm. to take you out of it because it's like it's difficult to watch something like Schindler's List or even like Sophie's Choice because it is so accurate to what Mm -hmm. was really happening The thing that's confusing to me about this film is like there are some moments that seem so harshly real, like scenes where somebody's getting beaten or somebody is like jumps into a vat of like human human Uh excrement and then gets murdered effectively, like shot at repeatedly. And then there's like this this crazy sex scene which I had so many complicated feelings about. Obviously, I'm I'm also not a Jewish person. I'm like one of the whitest people ever. So I can't speak to it from that perspective. But as a woman, I found that scene so conflicting mm-hmm. because I was so angry at him earlier when he raped that woman. That's also another moment of silence, too. There's no music over top of that, yeah. that assault either. It was really real to me. Like, it was interesting to contrast those two scenes because that one felt so real. Like, and then the the sex scene, you know, later on, which I don't know if you can call it a sex scene. It's it's a it's a manipulative sex scene. It had like you were saying has this sort of like artistic style that makes you drawn to it. So I feel like she's asking for us to have uncomfortable reactions mm-hmm. and to be like, well you know, what is right and what is wrong, like you're disgusted by this, 
Um, but at the same time, I was kind of I was kind of intrigued by the second sex scene because I was like, how often do we watch these scenes with these men that are attacking women? And then this is another scene of a woman yeah. attacking a man. Granted, she is a Nazi. Based based on history, like based on something that really happened. I mean, this is what Ilsa Koch is thought to have done. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think something that kind of helped me, um, and I don't remember where I read this. It's not my original idea, but someone pointed out that especially in this film she never judges the characters she lets the audience try to judge the characters she and that's throughout her filmography she never passes judgment um she just shows a a perspective or a point of view and i think i see that definitely in this film it's maybe a good moment to point out um and this is not fact checked I, i can't remember where i read this but um at one point it said that she met an extra while making swept away and that this was his, based on his life story, that he was a survivor of a concentration camp and a prisoner of war camp and, and that kind of thing. And so it's based on a real person, potentially, that she met within like her filmmaking context. I think what makes it a little bit easier for me to consume is that, as I think I mentioned earlier, that these feel more like symbols than like people often, Um, the way they're sort of presented. And and I found the same thing with Swept Away was I'm like, oh, I am looking at a representation of the working class and the bourgeoisie. So this Mm -hmm. makes it a little more palatable for me. And I think I found the same thing with this. We're, we're, We're also not Italian. So like I will say, as someone who is a huge fan of Italian film, it's taken me many years to figure out the regionalism of Italy. So making a film that's you know set about a Nepalese person is very different than Sicily, which is very different than Rome, which is where Love and Anarchy takes place, which is very different than Bologna. Like, I'm trying to wrap my head around what that means. That's, so to Italian audiences, that would have a ton of meaning ton of meaning and I think to American audiences that probably was lost unless they were of Italian descent I will just say that there is an opening that is quite arresting <laughs> um, which there's a lot of use of oh yeah uh, <laughs> which I think is still something that's synonymous with with Lena because like even when I watched she eventually won an honorary Oscar even though she didn't win two best years ago back in yeah, two, just two years ago. Just two years ago. 2019 in the before even. times. It's co-presented by two of the five women who have been nominated for directing Oscars. Jane Jane Campion, Greta Gerwig. Greta Gerwig uh, Kate, Catherine Bigelow, who won. Sofia Coppola. Oh, Sofia, oh, Sofia Coppola, Coppola, yeah. yeah. And then Lena Vertmuller. But, uh, but when they were presenting it to her, I feel like it was either I think it was Greta because it feels like a Greta thing to say that she said oh yeah when she was presenting the award to her. and I was like oh that my god was I you know I perfect. starting this film I was watching it and I thought I you know when you do that thing you're watching on your laptop um although eventually I moved to my tv because I realized I wanted to see it big I thought I had a music file playing in the background or like an ad and I was like I was like what what window is this why is this oh yeah song what is happening? And then I was like, oh my God, this is how the film starts? <laughs> what have I done? What have and the I- contrasting of that imagery and you're seeing actual dead bodies. And then I think the part that I was just most like riveted by is how prescient that she discusses flat earthers. And it's intended in like a tongue-in-cheek mm-hmm. sort of way about anti-intellectualism. But mm-hmm. it's like, oh yeah, you just straight up brought up flat earth. Amazing. <laughs> like this is this is absurd. This film accomplishes a lot. Let's yeah. just say. Yeah, but also I think like, I'm glad that that opening is there because I think it really sets a tone. And I feel like if I were watching this in the theater in 1975, I would be like, oh, this is the kind of movie I'm in for. Even if I'd read mm-hmm. that it's like about the Holocaust, I would be like, OK, this is like different. And I should be ready for to be like shocked or provoked. Mm-hmm. Like, I think she's like she's not playing around with what she's doing, which I think yeah. is like so, so bold and so impossible. <laughs> She's a, yes. she's a, it's an impossible film. She's an impossible filmmaker. And, you know, when you say that, Emily, it reminded me of like, well, it sets it really apart from a film like The Great Dictator, which is Charlie Chaplin made in the 40s while Hitler is coming to power and is, is 100% comedy. It doesn't have those newsreel scenes, albeit it would have been impossible to do, um, of, you know, the actual atrocities. It really does set it apart. But you know what I found was interesting when I was like researching and I was watching those those intros for her at the Oscars was that like Greta Gerwig called she said her feminism isn't dry, it's naughty and it's playful, which I found like really accurate to what 
she's yeah, doing. She's a mischievous you know, because provocateur. It's just interesting to think about like how masculine her movie is. And like, was that the reason why she was able to cross over yes. and was able to get this 100%. nomination? I 100% say yes, because yeah. this is not a nomination that went to Hester Street, even though that film was critically Incredible. acclaimed and not you know dealman had a lot of gene dealman had a lot of attention at film festivals but was never going to garner an academy award nomination this was digestible by male critics um and i'm sure that's why pauline kale kind of hated it i get why pauline kale hated it i'd be curious what pauline kale would say 50 years later um which is impossible but uh i think you're totally right that it male film critics felt comfortable with this film and, and also you mentioned this came out in 1976 in America. Mm-hmm. It was out in 75 in Italy. When you think that right down the street in Times Square, Taxi Driver was playing yeah. at the same time as this, and those were two of the biggest movies that year, I think that tells you a lot about the climate. I think that it's very hard to talk about this film because I'm scared people are going to judge me um, yeah. because the subject matter is so difficult. And even though people know me and my background as being, you know, programming and writing about women directors I'm so scared to touch Fruit Mueller I'm really glad you brought up Emily what Greta Gerwig said because that makes me feel better like I if Greta Gerwig is on board I'm like okay there's it's not all bad it is almost an embarrassing thing to be like, look, I really respect this film. I think this film is really something remarkable, but also really understand how difficult and problematic it can be considered because it is difficult and problematic. And that's part of what makes it great. Yeah, there's a there's a way to make a Holocaust film like Steven Spielberg did with Schindler's List, like a film like Sophie's Choice. Although it's a bit a bit a bit uh, a bit tangential, but uh and then there's a way that Vert Mueller did it and no one's done it. No one had done it up to that time and no one has done it since. Um, and I think, you know, it's a good thing about like Life is Beautiful, another Italian filmmaker, very, very different sentiment to depicting the Holocaust. I still think of her as just one of the most impossible filmmakers to digest, to to synthesize what her films mean, to I know what her style is, kind of. I think it's Scorsese in the documentary pointed out that she, everyone always compares her to Fellini because she studied under Fellini. No one had this visual style and no one had this vocabulary in Italy at the time. It wasn't Pasolini, it wasn't Leone, it wasn't Antonioni, who we're going to talk about, and it wasn't Fellini. She is wholly unique. And I think that makes it really hard 50 years later. And she's still with us. She's 93 she's still with us she's still she was working up until like her 90s in in italy and we still don't know how to talk about her that really says something interesting i also think like the like the fact that her background is kind of in theater and she was doing all these like puppet shows before she got you so much she was a puppeteer thank you so much (laughs) i forgot about that yeah and so that like that made the the dots sort of connected for me when I was watching this movie. I was like, oh, she's like playing to the back of the theater yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Like she's like hitting you over the head with stuff, point. which which is so interesting also in contrast to like what was happening in the 70s with sort of like this like more like realism and these like hardcore stories that uh, coming out of America. Which is literally you know, like the a- next movie we're going to be talking yeah. about sits in that same vein. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like. It's just really fascinating. I am upset that she doesn't like to call herself a feminist, mm-hmm. but I also know a lot of other people that I think are like the most feminist people in the Claire world. Claire do it yeah. to this day. Dolly Parton even yeah. like is not sure to call herself a feminist when I'm like, she's one of the most feminist yeah. people I've ever <laughs> heard of. In And the thing I think about it is like feminism is to me both in word and action. And I think like, the action is what matters the most to me. And like, so someone like Dolly Parton, she's putting into action her feelings and thoughts about women. And I I, I do feel like in a way by like making like a male character or like centering male characters that are idiots, like that is a sort of feminism because you're like, look at how stupid um, men are. Hugh Elaine look- May and Ishtar <laughs> and Mikey and Nikki and all of her films. I don't know. I like like when men are a little bit like, not dumb, but like 
they're not good. Like I, I don't, when they're like the hero of their story and they're like supposed to be perfect, I'm not interested because I don't believe that that's how men are. But when they're complicated and they're idiots and they're risk takers and they're like doing stuff that is not right, like I'm interested because that feels like reality that, yeah, to me. Yeah, that's, that's lived experience. Yeah. I also <laughs> yes. find that word anti-hero problematic um, mm-hmm. because I think, I mean, we don't say anti-hero generally when it comes to women. No, we yeah. say femme fatale, which is that's right. highly problematic. And that's a good place to take a break. When we come back, we're going to look at a movie Jack Nicholson loved so much, he had the rights included in a severance package for a deal that fell through. And then he was instrumental in it being released in a digital format in 2003, which is why we have it today. That's coming up after the break. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In 1972, China was reintroduced to the West after Nixon's visit to reestablish diplomatic ties with that country. It's a whole pretty complicated story on how that all went down. There's literally an opera written about it. But needless to say, the Chinese government was interested in improving their image in the Western world. So they, along with Italian public broadcaster RAI, decided to hire famed Italian director Michelangelo Antonioni to film a documentary showcasing communist China. Now, if you're familiar with Antonioni's work, which I know Alicia is, and I'm very excited to talk to her about this today, you might be surprised that they chose him. It can be pretty provocative stuff. And the film he produced, Cheng Ku, which from my understanding, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, is a Chinese term for China, meaning center of the world. And this film is gorgeous. Uh, He shot for five weeks, and in the end, he had a three-hour, three-part travelogue, narrated by himself in Italian, with the only Mandarin you hear being ambient conversation. And he shows acrobats performing these amazing stunts, um, a tea house for Communist Party elders, Tai Chi in the park, and in the most disgust and, quite frankly, disturbing moment, uh, a woman receiving a cesarean with supposedly only acupuncture as anesthetic. It's as graphic as you think it is. It screened in Italy for Chinese diplomats who originally seemed pleased with the results. And then there was a change in leadership for the Communist Party, and the film was denounced as anti-Chinese propaganda. May I jump in and and just point out something? Yes, this failed. Definitely see it. The change in the party then led in 1983 to um, the Chinese government deciding that the American emissary that would make China look great would be Big Bird. So they sent uh, right. they sent Big Bird to walk the Great Wall of China in 1983 as like oh I, it's on YouTube. <laughs> Just if you think Antonioni's China thing was interesting, I'm telling you, Big Bird visits China. <laughs> I actually got what I think Antonio what they wanted Antonioni to produce and didn't because yeah. he's too artistic. It it was accomplished uh, eight years later with, by Big Bird. Well, the big complaint that they had was that they said, and this was published by um, the Peking Review in 1974, the big issue was that he was showing China as like a backwater community and he was ignoring the parts of China that are great. So, for example, he was sent to film uh, a school um, that had a number of workers and was very modern. And he ended up filming the kids reading outside a derelict house outside the street. That's what made the cut. So, you know, I do I I do get it. But that's what's interesting, right? That's what someone like Antonioni is going to fix his camera on. On. The idea of sending Antonioni into a propagandic filmscape, I'm just like, what were you it's thinking? 
Let's send, exactly. Let's send Terrence Malick to like, make an <laughs> well, and, infomercial on something. And <laughs> this, I think what's so bonkers to me is that then the backlash against Antonioni. So in Beijing, there were literally <laughs> posters of him on the streets, like with swastikas posted over his face. Yeah. Um, the, yeah, this 1973 Venice Film Festival was protested both by China and Italy, wow. uh, Italy's communist parties. Um, and like they had to hold people back in the streets. It almost got violent. Um, and Antonioni's response was he was like, uh, I was a resistance fighter under the fascist regime. I was almost killed for that. I'm not a fascist. Like, this is yeah. really horrifying. Yeah. Now, we need to keep all that in mind because the very next film he made is The Passenger, also known as Profession Journalist, which essentially is about Jack Nicholson ending up in way over his head while making a documentary in a foreign country, which is like, oh boy, oh boy. Uh, let's talk The Passenger, guys. Who's got a uh, who's got a plot summary on this one? I can do this. I'm known for my long-winded plot summaries. <laughs> and if ever there was going to be one that was going to be long-winded, it's going to be this one. But I've, I've worked... <laughs> on keeping it short. Jack Nicholson plays David Locke, who goes to Chad um, in Africa to make a documentary. Um, his hotel room neighbor is um, a man by the name of Robertson, who dies of natural causes, a heart attack, something like that, in his room. Nicholson's character discovers the body, decides to impersonate him for reasons to the viewer that are completely unknown. Although so it, literally, it, when I first started watching this and I was like, hey, those two look really similar. I wonder there's if there's a reason. a reason for that in the casting. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, oh, because they're going to change bodies. That's why. Yeah, this, <laughs> is, this is the era, um, I guess, both in real life and in film, where you could just... Uh, peel off your photo and a passport and glue the other one on and no one will notice. Um, But yeah, these two actors do look alike. Um, And so lo and behold, uh, so that means Jack Nicholson's character's family think he's dead. His, his, his employers, he works for kind of like, I think like a national, like CBC esque sort of um, documentary film unit. Think he's dead. His wife thinks he's dead played by Jenny Runnaker from Jubilee amazing actress um and he impersonates this robertson's fellow to realize that he is an arms dealer so now yeah. he has impersonated an arms dealer and he makes a deal with um i believe it's the government of Ch- uh, gun runners and chad to deliver weapons that he has no idea where they are but he takes the money he has um robertson's appointment book which has appointments that take him from Chad to London to Munich to Barcelona to rural Spain. This is truly, like, I love that this film is called The Passenger. Going on a holiday? Sort of. Where do you want to leave the car? I don't know. Where are you going? I haven't made up my mind. This is almost a travelogue. Um, and you're seeing really interesting views of these mm-hmm. countries and cities in the mid-70s that do not look like that anymore, especially Barcelona. And he he meets Maria, uh, a character played by Maria Schneider, who we're going to talk a lot about. Um, they embark on an affair. He kind of tells her the truth, and she's along for the ride for some reason. Uh, and it goes very bad, as you would imagine, so impersonating <laughs> both, you know, faking their own death and also impersonating a gun runner would go. And his wife is also absolutely brilliant and figures out really freaking oh, yeah. quick that, you know, <laughs> Robertson is into something. And so she sends people to go figure this out. Like, he is the stupidest character in yep. this film. He's which, real dumb. But everybody, see, like, again, all the reviews I seem to read by men are like, he's just on an adventure and this is his life. And I'm like, no, he's a moron. <laughs> like, well, every choice I mean, he makes you know, it's is... 1975. It's Jack Nicholson. Think about films like Easy Rider. Think gotcha. about also, I mean, 1975, Jack Nicholson. This is the same year as One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which You're we right. talk about on the TV show a lot. And I believe he won the Academy Award for. This is a big, big year for Jack Nicholson. Yeah. Um, I get why male film critics were like, very used to these kind of ennui, 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 um, yeah. male characters, you know, this like alienation, yes. this isolation and thinking it's romanticized. I think watching this film in 2021, we don't necessarily do that. It does not take away from this film at all for me. It doesn't take away from the character because it's Antonioni and nothing matters. God. He, I mean, and this film is so freaking gorgeous. My God, this movie's beautiful. Stunning. Antonioni literally said That's true. that. I shouldn't say literally. Jack Nicholson mentioned that Antonioni's view of characters was they're just things moving through space. All that mattered to Antonioni was architecture, landscape, alienation, and kind of symbols. Like if you think about the Italian films he made before this, um, the alienation 
tetralogy, which is L'Eclisse, La Ventura, La Nota, and Red Desert um, from the 60s. Yeah, nothing really happens. There's like, you know, some of them are set up to be like, you know, mysteries, and you never solve the mystery, and it drove critics insane. So it's, it's, it's just not fair to watch this film and think, I want to know why. I want, I want it to have characterization, motiv- character motivation. It doesn't, it doesn't exist. It doesn't. As you mentioned, he, uh, he, with his exotic travel companion, played by Maria Schneider. She's so good. He asks her three times, why are you here with me? And there's never an answer. She's like, I just am. I just am. And she's the ethereal pixie woman. What the fuck are you doing here with me? Which me? The only one I know. He specifically is like, what the fuck are you doing here with me? And well, every time the- he says that, I thought to myself, if it's Antonioni saying, why the fuck are you watching my film? <laughs> <laughs> And we, and we don't have an answer, necessarily. Nope. Also, because it's absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> she doesn't have a name. Her name is no. The no, she's girl, the, the girl. Which yeah. I didn't even realize. Like, I was like, oh, I, I don't think I've heard her name. And then I, like, looked it up and I was like, maybe I just, maybe I just missed it. And I was like, no, no, she's nope. the girl. Okay, got it, got it. Yeah. Um, And, like, the thing about her, Maria Schneider, is just, like, she was known for sort of playing opposite these like older men and like when you look at her next to Jack Nicholson like he looks much older than her she's so Mm -hmm. fresh-faced I like don't fully understand why she would be with him but I also have a crush on Jack Nicholson so at the same time I do mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know why are, why are we ever with anyone I just when you said that Emily like I don't understand why she's with him do you know how many people have probably said that about me <laughs> not my, I have to not admit. my current not my current partner but previous partners like it's inexplicable sometimes well, sometimes I want to wander through the grocery when you, grocery store, like on the street, when like you see like a, clearly a relationship that's going incredibly poorly. Um, I saw this couple like screaming at each other in IKEA about the yellow does not go in the living room. Like they had like a six foot distance, Becky, and this was pre COVID. You cannot judge a relationship based on our reactions at an IKEA. But all I want no. to do is just Ikea whisper gently. IKEA is the nexus of relationship hell, <laughs> truly. Both while you're there and while you're building. It's because so... they make it so hard to get out. It's a metaphor. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. But, but all I want to, but all I want to do is just whisper at them. You can leave. Yeah, you can leave. You're but not stuck. I think, like this film, yeah, we can leave. But yeah. We, why but don't we? Don't. Why do we stay? Why is his wife even trying to find him? She's having an yeah. affair. Well, she seems very happy with this other man. Yeah. So he, yeah, he's stimulating. He uh, he treats her seriously. Obviously, they have a ch- okay. They have a child. Yeah. He, she and Jack Nicholson have a child, but they never actually mention the child at any point. I actually don't know if it's a child with his wife. Oh, okay. I think okay. it could be. Oh. He does mention being a dad, but I think it actually could be like an estranged child, potentially. Um, I will say, you know, it, it what's important to note in this relationship, and it doesn't really get revealed until later in the film, is. He's a documentary filmmaker. Um, we see a flashback where he is uh, interviewing like a dictator, basically, and the dictator's giving the government, you know, sanctioned bullshit responses to how well he treats the people. And his wife has come to visit him on set for one day, and she really questions him, like, why didn't you ask, you know, op- like the questions that the world wants to ask about like, you know, genocide and about all of these things? And he says, well, you know, like, this is what the company told me to do. And you see the disappointment in her face and you see the disappointment in his face when he recognizes it in her. And more so than her having an affair, that's the moment for me where I was like, oh, yeah, this guy's got to switch identities fast. (laughs) (laughs) And go on an actual adventure with, you know, there is something. I mean, I'm not exactly pro gun runner. I'm just going to (laughs) say, but you got to have a spine to be a gun runner. Like there's a certain amount of gumption that is required in order to run guns, especially in the middle of a revolution. Yeah, to get involved in politics of which you know nothing about. Um, Because, yeah, I think it's Chad is starting trying to stage a revolution uh yeah i mean uh, oh man can we talk about what makes this film so famous like in terms like because it's not the plot and it's 100 there i think there's there's two scenes that are really like the most spoken about neither of them involve maria schneider uh but uh emily what did you think when you first saw those two scenes are you speaking specifically like the ending is like one scene that is very remarkable which is sort of this like long shot that reveals sort of this this ending that is like both very climatic but also anticlimactic like it's 
mm-hmm. like there's a, the camera almost like pushes through the bars, the windowed bars outside mm-hmm. of this hotel that he is staying in or this place that he's staying in. And it's like it's very hard to look away. Also, you're like far away, like she's out sort of in this square talking to this man and you feel sort of like an outsider. It's like almost that you're looking from his perspective out the window mm-hmm. at what's happening. So you so you don't know enough and then it sort of flips around so you're looking from the outside and you're not you don't go it's not traditional like in another movie you would be right there in the room with him I'm Mm -hmm. trying not to reveal the ending but you would be right there in the room seeing what happens quite at the end but here you're you're removed and you don't actually Mm -hmm. even see I was impressed that like we didn't like see his dead body at the end or hear a gunshot or hear like it's very like soft and like beautiful and like it is so haunting it's like the one of the most haunting sequences i've ever seen in a film and i think it also takes on an extra meaning because the end is sort of like her his his wife is there and she's being asked if it's him is this debbie robinson did you recognize him i never knew him you know and so Mm -hmm. you don't actually see his face as she's speaking about it which i think Mm -hmm. adds some power to like who is he now and is he like now Robertson fully or is he still David Locke like what who who is this man and what has he become if I can just for a second bring us into exactly how they did that shot because we're still two years away from steady cams and it's one of those things that when you watch older films you can be like okay well that's kind of a neat shot but like that would be super easy to accomplish with your with your freaking iPhone now right they had to shoot specifically at between five o'clock and 7 30 at night because at that time there was very little difference in the lighting between indoors and outdoors doors exactly uh and then the camera ran on a ceiling track in the hotel room and then when it got outside the window it was picked up by a hook suspended on a giant crane that was nearly 30 meters high and the camera also had a series of gyroscopes inside so that there wouldn't be any change in between the smooth track and the mobile crane and then the bars outside the window were fitted on hinges and the camera comes up to the bars they swing away at the same time and then the hook on the crane attaches itself to the camera and leaves the tracks and antonioni is in a van down the block with a series of microphones and walkie-talkies so that he can explain to the crew exactly what needs to happen when. He built the hotel, too. This isn't an existing hotel. He selected the location. It's really stunning in a small town in Spain because there was, like, an existing... It used to be a church that was across the street from a really old bullfighting ring. You actually described it really succinctly and well, Becky. But you know what I kind of pictured when I was trying to wrap my head around how did they possibly do this shot? And before I read the reality, I pictured those Fisher-Price houses we grew up with in the 80s that are like a hinge that you can open up like a book. Do you know what I mean? And it's kind of that idea in some ways where you're removing part of the wall and opening up the hotel to like insert the camera. This is one of the most famous long shots in the history of film. You know, it's kind of on par with something like a touch, Orson Welles' Touch of Evil from 1958. It is unbelievable. And I I don't think I, I was I was pretty won over by this film up to that point anyway. Like I was it's slow and meanders and I had a hard time with parts of the plot. I was OK with that. Seeing the sequence sequence, which I believe is like eight or nine minutes. I can't be that long. It felt that long. I just sat down and I re- I just stopped and I rewatched. It's not the final sequence. There is a shot that comes after. It's the penultimate shot. And I just sat down and watched it three times. Antonio's two American films prior to this, of course, are uh, Blow Up, which I think was probably also an Italian co-production, and um, Zabriskie Point. So, I mean, like, to have that trilogy of Blow Up, Zabriskie Point, and The Passenger is pretty incredible and just coming back to Lena Vrittmuller, had someone given her a second chance or the same kind of leeway that Antonioni was given for these three studio films, which were MGM, produced for Carlo Ponti, she would have reached this excellence, I feel. Absolutely. No question. And she would have figured out how to work in the system and they would have figured out her and it would have been, you know, that's how those kinds of things work. When I think the one that got me, because this one I was like, oh, how the heck did they do that in 1975? The first one that I was like, oh, that was, that tickled me on the inside at the very beginning in, in the first hotel room. And he's, it seems like it's a memory sequence with the voiceover yes. going on of him remembering the conversation he had with Robertson. Mm-hmm. And then you realize, oh, no, no, he's actually got this recorded on a yeah. tape recorder. Like that reveal is so good. Because he's a documentarian so you were you secretly record 
Well, I guess it's like at one point Robertson on the audio is like, oh, are you accidentally recording this? And he's like, oh, yeah, I am. <laughs> and it keeps going. And you're like, oh, my God. In India, you know, they, yeah, I think your tape recorders. Uh, yes, I must have. Uh, still running, you know. Yeah. So. I guess the other, if there's a third sequence for me, and I'm interested in what both of you think. Um, the execution oh, sequence. Mm. Do we want to talk about that? Because yeah. it's quite the feat. Uh, my partner and I are watching Evil Genius on Netflix right now. Mm -hmm. um, I had seen it previously. He had not, but we're both down a rabbit hole of true crime. Mm -hmm. And um, and so that bit where the gentleman's collar explodes and he is killed on camera, um, I can't watch it. I couldn't watch it the first time. It's a, I don't, it's a real, don't it's it's a real death. It's really hard. It's a real death. And this was kind of the same thing where I didn't expect this to happen. And watching a fictional film, I did not expect this to be what it was. And I actually asked you before we started the podcast, like, was that real? And Alicia, the answer based on my research yes is that 100% fact checked and confirmed no I will keep working on it but most people have said yes it's um, taken from a third party like almost newsreel footage of uh, a prisoner execution um, on Lagos Beach in Nigeria uh, a very famed site where they did they conducted um, executions it's a firing squad execution it's seamlessly kind of tied as though it's like a justification for for this gun running and, and what's going on in sub-Saharan Africa. What I read is it's an execution of a thief on Bar Beach, which is a very famed site. And it, it certainly looked real, but it's Antonioni, so you can never really tell, right? And, and coming back yeah. to Lena's film, Seven Beauties, like, very different tactic, right? To show all the death, the real unsimulated death that she does in the title sequence, yeah. For Seven Beauties, this is a different tactic that kind of, I think it's effective, though, for Antonioni to show, you know, it might not matter why Jack Nicholson's character ha is motivated to do these things, but the urgency of what the plot surrounds is very important. Yeah, I will say, like, when I watched the movie, I was taken aback by the execution scene anyways, and I was like, whoa, that's really, <laughs> like, rough and really real, and to hear that it is possibly actually real, like, is extra horrifying, and I also think, like, the rest of this movie has like this kind of like slow sort of meandering tone and there's also this added element of like the David Locke character even though I feel like he sh he should be like freaked out about everything he's like weirdly calm which to me sort of like read as like almost like a depressed person like like a, a man who just like you know has maybe seen so much and like is sort of like numbed but I, mean, I don't know if you guys mm -hmm. felt the same but I, I felt this mm -hmm. like detachment from him which is which also sort of I think leads yeah. into like the passenger on a more metaphorical level like we're all just these passengers on the like voyage mm -hmm. of life which might sound cheesy but like truly it's like he's just going from place to place and I don't even know that he's like fully you know that's very Antonioni like I think that's really well said um if you watch La Ventura they just go from place to place looking for their missing friend and you know they're never going to find her and you never find out what happened to her and they just keep traveling where they think she might have gone she goes missing on a boat cruise and La Nota is about a, a marriage that just sort of it's not even really conflict it's just falling apart and it's over one night and you see the dissolution of the marriage occur like and Red Desert, I don't even know what it's about. I love that film so much. But it's just about <laughs> architecture and spaces and the alienation um, of the world and on the human being. But uh, yeah, that's a really good point to me. I kind of would describe his character as like once he decides to assume um, a dead man's identity, he's really the walking dead at that point. And I think that him ending up dying in a hotel room in the same position as the person whose identity he took just means like he it's almost like fate in some ways it's this weird witchiness that kind of happens in the film um that is so effective um yeah uh just to finish up i want to bring us back into uh maria schneider yeah. and uh kind of where where she was at and uh this is going to be one of those uh difficult pieces one of the reasons she got the part in this was because of the film last tango in paris um which if you are not familiar with that it's her paired with marlon brando and she was actually assaulted during that film and it proceeded to affect the rest of her life unfortunately it did make her into an advocate for a lot of women's rights on camera she uh 
really did her due diligence after that point to stand up for herself and be like, uh, for for example, for the passenger, there was meant to be a number of nude scenes, which she refused to do. Uh, there really was this big push, as Emily mentioned earlier, to cast her with these older men. This is certainly one of them. And when she moved to the U.S. in 1975, she was actually interviewing with Roger Ebert. There's a great series of Roger Ebert interviews from 1975 when he was in L.A. And she was considering being part of a film with Robert Mitchum. And uh, she was asked, well, or she said, well, what do you think of the chemistry which would be like between me and Robert Mitchum? And Ebert answered dynamite. And she says, yeah, but, you know, I like uh, I think you're right. But like, I don't get it because I don't find these older men attractive. These are not the kind of men I go for. But I keep seeming to be cast with these men. And it's like, yeah, why do they keep doing this to you? Yeah, it's it's gross. Especially because, like, it's so obvious to me that she was very talented and captivating, and I Mm -hmm. feel like she could do so much more than just being sort of this, like, match for a famous man. Um, Also, I think something interesting to consider is, like, she was, like, an open bisexual, and they kept forcing Mm -hmm. her to play these roles opposite men that I think was, like, almost trying to, like, push her to be like, well, she's bisexual, but look at her with a man. It's fine. She's with a man, especially because she actually had a, quite a few scandals in terms of like there was a film where she like left set and she went to a mental hospital because her lover, who was a woman, was in there. Like, so she was discussing hmm. this stuff. And so it was like oh, really man. trying to still solidify her as this like, like straight sex symbol like conversion therapy and this yeah and so that really like took me aback because she was such a badass and i i i love reading about how she sort of took things back later on but it sucks that like that became her narrative and like someone like Mm -hmm. a marlon brando or jack nicholson can go on to do a thousand other movies where they're allowed to do whatever they want and their characters have names (laughs) you know on top of that one of the one of the facts that i thought was interesting is in the same roger ebert interview she said she was talking to jack nicholson about um she was paid five thousand dollars for last tango in paris um and then it became this mega hit and jack nicholson was like oh well when easy rider took off they gave me a bunch more cash and she was like yeah that sure as hell didn't happen with last tango in paris so so that was something, something that was I like, kind of wow, read after, wow. you know, watching this film is um, she had really badly injured her back prior to doing The Passenger. So she was on very heavy uh, pain medication, which to Jack Nicholson's credit, he worked with her to kind of reorganize some of the filming. But it, a lot of the scenes, mm-hmm. um, if they were filming like after a certain time of day, like two o'clock, he had to kind of prop her up because she phys- physically could not stand oh, up without being in excruciating pain. Um, which is to look at her performance, which I think is really good in this film, and admire it even more. That could not have been easy um, at that no, time. Definitely not. Just one quote from Maria that I loved. I like. I could read about her all day, to be honest with you. But yeah. she said, "Never take off your clothes for middle-aged men who claim that it is art." God damn it! <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was. I was like, that needs to be a T-shirt. <laughs> like I, I would, you know, because yeah. it it just. Yeah, and I'm, I I love that she refused to be nude in this film, and then she refused to be nude in yeah. so many other films because she. But it just sucks that it had to get to this point where she had to feel that yeah, way. Yeah, and there is a sex scene in this film, and she is she's nude, but it's it's tastefully done in that it's doesn't the camera doesn't you know act as a voyeur like she's it's kind of shot from the back, so you see her her bare back. It's um, a beautiful sequence actually. Uh, there is a way to have a sex scene and have elements of nudity without exploiting your actress the way that Bernardo Bertolucci did to a, an incredible criminal extreme in uh, The Last Tango. And even in the 70s, I think of the Donald Sutherland, Julie Christie uh, sex scene from Don't Look Now, which is one of my favorite sex scenes of all time. I think it's really something special. That does not feel voyeuristic at all. It feels, yeah, it's, it's very, very tasteful. Mm-hmm. But then Nicholas Rogue makes bad timing, and that's one of the <laughs> hardest Art Garfunkel focus sex scenes in the history of cinema. <laughs> so let's oh, not let's not give Rogue too much credit. <laughs> <laughs> and Sorry. I think that is the perfect place to end this episode. Uh, once again, I want to thank Emily Gangye of the We Really Like Her podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This was so fun and challenging and ex- exciting, to be honest. Because I just I don't know about you guys, but 
through we're still in like sort of lockdown here at this point in recording I feel like movies are what's Mm -hmm. keeping me going and I'm trying so hard to watch Mm -hmm. stuff that I haven't watched so I really thank you guys for forcing me to watch stuff and uh, I will keep you updated on what I watch from Lena next because honestly Swept away. Swept away. Do swept away. Cool. Yeah. It's. It's. I can give you. I'll send you an order that I feel. (laughs) um, Having been someone who's just watched five of her films in six days. These are the kind of people that you guys get on your quality podcast. Thank you so much, Alicia Fletcher, for bringing your quality to this. It's always such a pleasure. Thank you, Becky. I googled um, like purveyors of white rimmed glasses i don't even wear glasses but expect to see that glasses appropriation as someone who wears glasses i am calling you out of your glasses appropriation for fashion purposes <laughs> when we come back next week we're going to get into a debate over who makes a better villain david bowie or tim curry do you have an opinion because we sure do that's coming up next week when we start our series on 1986 Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to chat with us to find more great content from Hollywood Suite? Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cam Maitland. Our guests today were Alicia Fletcher and Emily Gagné. Supervising producer is Ryan Maines. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagné. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. <laughs>